beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is difficult for us to appreciate the scale of the disaster, of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple for the faithful Israelite. It was much more than having their home and possessions destroyed by foreign invaders, as hard as that must have been. For the faithful Israelite, the destruction of Jerusalem was a far greater disaster. For the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple meant that the Lord was no longer with them. He had chosen Jerusalem to place his name there. That is where he would dwell with his people in the house which they had built for their God. That was where the sacrifices would be offered. That was where the official ministry of reconciliation occurred. How the blood needed to flow daily to make atonement for the sins of the people. But now the temple, the place of the ministry of reconciliation was destroyed. The means of making atonement for sin was no longer available. This punishment of the Lord was very severe. The people of Judah were taken from their homes and from Jerusalem and the temple to a foreign land, to a land in which God had not chosen to dwell. Far from Jerusalem and Mount Zion, the Israelites were separated from God's means of grace and mercy. How the faithful people of God wailed because of this catastrophe. We sang from Psalm 137. It speaks of this despair of the Israelites. The psalmist cries out, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. These words of faith show the great importance of Jerusalem in the faith of the Israelites. Even though they are far from their homeland in a foreign land, and even though Jerusalem is destroyed, yet they still cling to Jerusalem and Zion and consider it their highest joy. For 70 years, the people of God had to live in exile with no official means of reconciliation. And now, at the time of our text, some of these exiles have returned to Jerusalem, but it is still in ruins. The temple has still not been rebuilt. And so the most pressing question is, would the ministry of reconciliation in the temple at Jerusalem be restored? Zechariah receives a fourth vision from the Lord with another encouraging message. In this vision appears Joshua the high priest, 
one of the leaders of the community of the returned exiles. I proclaim to you God's word under this theme. By reinstating Joshua as high priest, the Lord reestablishes the official ministry of reconciliation. We will see first how this was opposed, second how this took place, and third how this leads to faithful service. Zechariah sees another vision in which he sees Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Joshua the high priest stands before the representative of the Lord in the heavenly courts. And Joshua is being accused by Satan. This Joshua was the grandson of Sariah, who was the chief priest in Jerusalem when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Joshua's father, Jehoshadak, was taken into exile into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And so this Joshua was most probably born in Babylon. He was the direct heir for the office of high priest. In the Old Covenant, the high priest was the representative of all the Israelites before God. When the high priest went about his daily task in the holy place, he was a dazzling figure. He wore a blue robe. And on top of the robe was an ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Upon the shoulder pieces of the ephod were two onyx stones in which were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel. The high priest also wore a breast piece on top of the ephod. And this breast piece held 12 precious stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Along the hem of the blue robe were pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn alternated with gold bells. On his head was a turban of fine linen to which was attached a plate of pure gold on which was the inscription, Holy to the Lord. The high priest was a splendid-looking servant of the Lord as he went about his regular business in the temple. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, when he went into the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the ark, he wore much simpler clothing, simply a linen garment. But on both occasions, he was dressed in pure and holy garments, suited to his all-important task of performing the official ministry of reconciliation on behalf of the people before their holy God. But now look at the high priest in the vision. There is none of the splendor, purity, and holiness which one would expect from a high priest in Israel. He is dressed in filthy garments, these dirty garments represent the sins of the people. After the return from exile, the high priest appears before the Lord, bearing all the many sins of Israel, including his own sin. Surely such a filthy high priest would not be able to serve in the temple before the Lord. God's law was very strict on that point. 
Aaron and his sons had to wear the stipulated garments, and these garments had to be in top condition. Any irregularities in the clothing were offenses that would result in death. But here was the high priest appearing in filthy clothes. How could he do that? What would happen now? And Satan is right there, taking full advantage of the situation. He is standing at Joshua's right side, ready to accuse him. What kind of accusations would Satan bring? He would try to ridicule and humiliate Joshua for his filthy garments, which represent his sins and the sins of all the people. He would question Joshua about why he even thought that he could be a high priest in such condition. Also, the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed. So what was he thinking and expecting? Can't Joshua see that the Lord has rejected Jerusalem? Why would he expect the temple service to be restored? Would Joshua be able to serve as high priest in such a filthy condition? Satan would continue to press home all of his accusations against Joshua. So many sins have been committed that there is not a chance that God would accept any of his people back again. Satan would want to argue. He really hoped that there would never be a restoration of the temple service ever again in Jerusalem. He had already used the neighbors of the Israelites to prevent the rebuilding of the temple. These kinds of accusations from Satan must have been very painful for Joshua and Zechariah to hear, for they seemed entirely justified. Israel had been rebellious and had not sought the Lord the way they should have. The situation seemed to be hopeless. Joshua was there in his filthy garments. How would reconciliation with a holy God come about at this rate? There was no temple, and there was no service of reconciliation, and Israel had deserved this bad situation. In these hopeless circumstances, amid Satan's flying assaults, listen to the word of the Lord and how he addresses Satan after he has made his accusations. The Lord is very harsh with Satan. He rebukes Satan twice explicitly and names him by name in verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. The Lord is very angry with Satan and tells him off. The Lord rebukes Satan for accusing Joshua. He rebukes Satan for calling into question the validity of his own work, which he has done for his people. For the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, and nothing can change that 
also not the devilish accusations of the evil one. The Lord has made an everlasting covenant with Jerusalem and Zion, which he cannot revoke. The covenant faithfulness of the Lord never fails. Zechariah has found that out so many times in the first visions he receives. As he heard in the first vision, the Lord is very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. No matter how unfavorable the situation may seem, the Lord remains steadfast in his great plan of salvation. God's grace and electing love will triumph over human weakness. The Lord continues with his rebuke to Satan in verse 2 by saying, Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Joshua was almost completely lost and beyond all hope. But then God rescued him from certain destruction. Just like a branch is narrowly prevented from being completely consumed when plucked from the fire, so does Joshua narrowly escape from the wrath and anger of God as shown in the exile. Such a narrow escape is miraculous and wondrous. It is also an indication of the firmness of the resolve of the rescuer to actually pick up that burning branch. He doesn't want it to be destroyed. No, it must be saved. And after the rebuke of Satan, the angel of the Lord said in verse 4 to the angels who are standing before Joshua, remove the filthy clothes from him. What a command. A command full of grace and compassion. Joshua is accepted in the heavenly court. He is not sent away because of his filthy clothes. The accusations of Satan are not heeded. But Joshua is not left to stand in his filthy garments either. They must be removed and done away with. The high priest of God's people cannot remain in his filthy garments. After the dirty clothes had been taken away, the angel of the Lord said to Joshua, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The sin of Joshua the high priest has been taken away, and he will be clothed with pure ropes. The word vestments is a term used to describe robes of ceremony or of a special office. Joshua's filthy garments, symbolizing his sin and the sin of the people, will be removed. And he will once again receive the proper, splendid, high priestly dress. He will not have to make it himself, but he will receive it from the Lord. The scene must have been so vivid and real to Zechariah that he also gets involved. And he suggests in verse 5 that a clean turban be put on Zechariah's head. That would ensure that 
Joshua's outfit for performing his service of mediation and reconciliation in the temple would be complete. And so the angels put a clean turban on him as well, while the angel of the Lord stood by. And on the golden plate attached to the turban stood holy to the Lord. Joshua was again suitably dressed for rendering service in the temple. This was an incredible vision for Zechariah to see. The temple and Jerusalem were still in ruins, and the official ministry of reconciliation had not been going on for over 70 years. Had God completely rejected Jerusalem, the place where he had said that he would put his name? No, he had not. The Lord had chosen Jerusalem long ago, and he will maintain his word of promise. Now he will again reestablish the official ministry of reconciliation so that it can continue in Jerusalem, the place of his choice. He has clothed Joshua the high priest with all the splendor of his high office. The blood of animals can again flow to atone for the sins of the Israelites. In this concrete way, the Lord shows that he has indeed come to Israel again in mercy. The powers of sin and of Satan will not prevail. But the Lord will once again officially reopen the way to communion with him. But as wonderful as this was, yet the blood which was shed in the temple remained that of animals. All those sacrifices would not actually bring about reconciliation, but instead they pointed towards the true sacrifice which was to come. Now in the time of the new covenant, brothers and sisters, we may know the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. The Son of God possessed glory far superior to the splendid robes of the high priest. But he was willing to lay it aside, take it off in order to put on the filthy garments of our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for our sake. He was assailed and tempted by Satan as none of us ever will be, but he stood firm and he resisted. He went to the cross burdened with all of our dirty clothes and offered the perfect sacrifice. This perfect sacrifice provides the means for complete reconciliation with God. Because he put on our filthy garments, we may appear before God in spotless garments. Beloved in the Lord, we can always go to Jesus Christ in our sin and misery. For the accusations of our conscience can also lead us to despair. Satan is no longer in heaven, able to accuse us directly before God. For he has been evicted from heaven 
through Christ's work and is now restricted to this earth. We read in Revelation 12 that when he was thrown out of heaven, there was a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him with the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. What a glorious victory we have received through Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us. Yet while Satan no longer accuses us directly before God, we do have an accuser in our hearts. We confess in Lord's Day 23 that we are righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. We also confess there, although my conscience accuses me, that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. We do not need Satan to accuse us, for our conscience does that as well. And yet the fact that Satan no longer has an audience with God shows that progress has been made in the history of redemption. We are all sinners, and we all have our struggles against sin in our lives each and every day. And so often we seem to fail in our struggle against sin. We resolve to fight against our sin, but so often we fall into the same sin yet again. When this happens, we can despair. And then we can think to ourselves, now I've really done it. How can there be any hope for me anymore? I am so weak and keep falling into the same sin again and again. How do I dare for, ask for forgiveness yet again? And so our doubts can grow and we can genuinely wonder if God will really forgive us yet again. The situation seems so hopeless. We must confront these thoughts of despair head on and realize that ultimately they come from a sinful heart which seeks to deceive and which seeks to belittle the grace and love of God. For the Lord sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our many sins. Let us not despair because of our sin but actively seek the Lord on the basis of his steadfast love. In Christ, he has also provided the definitive means of reconciliation between himself and sinful mankind. The Lord remains faithful to his promises of reconciliation. We have been baptized and in our baptism, we have received the promise of the forgiveness of all of our sins. Just as surely as water washes away the dirt from our body, 
so surely does the blood and Spirit of Christ remove our sins. These promises of reconciliation are completely dependable and should never be doubted. Each one of us who embraces Jesus Christ as the only Savior may and will also put on Christ and be dressed in His white and perfect garments. May each one of us personally Believe the sure promise of the Lord in verse 4. Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with rich vestments. Reconciliation also leads to faithful service, and this takes us to our th third point. Once Joshua has been reinstated in the office of high priest, the angel of the Lord gave him this charge in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those standing here. Joshua has been reinstated as high priest. But that does not mean that he can just take it easy. No, the Lord clearly has a task for him. He must walk in the Lord's ways and keep his requirements. The priests in the Old Covenant had the task of teaching the Israelites the decrees of the Lord. They also had to perform all of the ritual aspects of temple service, which is what uh, keep my charge here refers to. Joshua must maintain the old directives of the Mosaic law. What a blessing to be allowed to do this in a post-exilic restored Jerusalem. If Joshua carries out these instructions of the Lord faithfully, he will be allowed to rule in the Lord's house and also have charge of his courts. Before the exile, the king was ultimately in charge of the temple affairs. But now, after the exile, the authority has been transferred to the high priest. In the same way, the highest courts in the land were now under the authority of the high priest instead of the king. But most importantly, as we read in the last part of verse 7, Joshua will receive a place or the right of access among the angels who are standing there. What does that mean? If Joshua faithfully carries out his office, as outlined in the previous part of verse 7, then he will be counted as though he belonged with the angels in heaven. The angels do their office and task faithfully and willingly. They serve their Lord and Master with their whole being. Joshua now performs, as it were, the task of heavenly angels on earth. If he performs it faithfully, he will always have a place among the angels in heaven. He will feel at home with them 
for their purpose is the same as his. They both want to serve their master faithfully in all that they do. Joshua was reinstated as high priest because of the totally undeserved mercy of the Lord. His filthy clothes were removed and replaced with pure vestments by grace alone. And now the Lord directs him to work in his service. Thankfulness for the Lord's mercies results in action in the Lord's service. Reconciliation reestablishes our relationship with the Lord, and this relationship must be filled with willing service to Him from our side. Brothers and sisters, how do you respond in your life to the blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation with God? Do you identify with Joshua in this vision who was given the promise of ruling in God's house and having a place among the angels in heaven? Is this also your desire to walk in the Lord's ways and receive the reward of reigning with Christ in life eternal hereafter? May we never fall into the deadly trap of taking God's grace for granted, of sinning so that grace may abound. But rather, let us show in our life how grateful and thankful we are to God for His salvation and therefore walk in His ways more and more. Yes, the struggle against sin is real and difficult. But the grace of God in Christ is triumphant. And in the strength of the Spirit of Christ, we can live a new life more and more. Set before you the prize. Always keep in mind that our destination is life eternal with God. And therefore now already, we need to begin living in that way. Living in joyful service to our faithful and gracious Lord. Zacharias sees even more blessings. In verse 8, the Lord announces to Joshua and his friends who sit before him, that is, his fellow priests, that he, the Lord, will bring his servant the branch. Joshua and his fellow priests are called men who are assigned. This means that in their priesthood, they point to something better which will come in the future. The New International Version translates this clearly with men who are symbolic of things to come. The whole tenor of the prophecy at this point is messianic and points to the more distant future. The branch is a common English translation of something that refers to a new shoot or new growth. It refers to the new beginning, which will happen, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He will bring about the actual reconciliation with God through the shedding of his blood. The priests and the high priest Joshua are a shadow pointing towards the glorious reality of Jesus Christ, 
who is both the Lamb of God and our High Priest, who opens the way for us to God. In this vision, the Lord also speaks of the stone which He has set in front of Joshua. The stone also points to the coming Messiah, the cornerstone of the building of the people of God. The seven eyes of the Lord are upon this stone, for it is very precious to him. The placing of this cornerstone points to the certainty of the ministry of reconciliation. And so the Lord gives the promise that he will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Beloved in the Lord, we may know of that day, the day called Good Friday, when our Lord Jesus Christ offered the decisive sacrifice of himself and so reconciled us to God. Let us dedicate ourselves to him in grateful service and devotion. The friends with Joshua point to the full temple service that would be restored. Now we may be God's people in the time after Christ's perfect sacrifice. The very existence of the people of God today shows the reality of Christ's redeeming work. The fact of our existence as a congregation of Jesus Christ points to the great mercy and love of the Lord. We were filthy and dirty and without any hope in the world. But then God came and pulled us to himself. He plucked us like one pulls a burning stick from the fire of certain destruction. He chose us in Christ and took away our sin. He clothed us with pure and clean garments and made us worthy to serve before him. Zechariah hears from the Lord of hosts that this wonderful reconciliation holds one last consequence. In verse 10, the Lord says, In that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This prophecy of the last day goes even beyond the usual Israelite image for peaceful and prosperous times. In 1 Kings 4, verse 25, for instance, we read about Israel during Solomon's time. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. The prophecy which Zechariah hears promises not only peaceful and tranquil times like the days of Solomon, but it also points to a time when each man will willingly share his peaceful spot with his neighbor. His neighbor, not just his friends or family which he loves. In that day, everyone will invite anyone to share together in his own little garden. 
The reconciliation which the Lord brings has powerful effects also among the people of God. What a beautiful picture of the peace and fellowship that we will enjoy in the new heaven and the new earth. How great and incomprehensible is the mercy and love of God. May we always stand amazed at God's abounding love and grace. May that spur us on to eager and faithful service to the Lord. Let us put our old nature to death more and more and strive with all that the Lord provides us to labor faithfully for him in the place that he has given us in life. All our labors will not be in vain, but they will follow us into the next life. May we always have that eternal perspective in mind. We never know when the Lord will call us to himself, and therefore let us always be ready. Walk in his ways and live out of his love every day of our life. If we remain steadfast and persevere in service to him, then on that great day we will be clothed with white ropes and we will be in the garden of paradise, in the new Jerusalem, praising God and reigning with Christ into all eternity. How we yearn for that day to come. Amen. Let us now sing together hymn 27, stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 8. <clears throat> 